the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Putting on Christ-likeness. What that means and what that looks like is the subject of today's broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Join us. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Many of us remember that song from Sunday school when we were kids. So here's the question. Does your life actually show that you've been saved? Have you been putting on Christ-likeness? That is a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge that the Apostle Paul helps us with here in Colossians. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. We're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17 today, a message called Putting on Christ-likeness. Join us as we're encouraged to be like our elder brother. Here's Pastor Gary with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. A humble person considers other people more important than himself. A humble person considers the interests and needs of other people more important than his own needs and interests. You see a great illustration of humility in the life of the centurion. Do you remember? He asked Jesus to come to his house to heal his slave. The Pharisees did everything they could to talk Jesus into going. They said, Jesus, you've got to go to this guy's slave and help him. This guy has built us a synagogue. He's one of the most patriotic men we know. He is worth it. Go to his house and heal his slave. So Jesus goes to the centurion's house, and here is what Luke 7, 6 says. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy to have Jesus in my home. But Jesus came because this is the kind of man Jesus wants. Then do you remember the two people praying in Luke 18, 9? One was a Pharisee who said, Lord... You're lucky to have me. You're lucky to have me on your side. I'm not like other people. It's a lot better. I'm a lot better than other people. Then you have the tax collector. And it says in Luke 18, 13, standing some distance away, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that is true humility. A person who sees himself, and only a person who sees himself as the object of God's grace and mercy can be humble and consider other people better than himself. So you can tell a lot about a person 
as to how you pray to the Lord with reference to humility. Do you pray, Lord, keep me humble? Or do you pray, Lord, make me humble? If you say, keep me humble, it's easy to know how highly you regard yourself. Lord, make me humble. Break me. Give me a high view of yourself and a low view of myself that makes me want to put other people before myself. Then Paul says, put on gentleness or meekness. And that is a quiet spirit of submission to God, even in the face of provocation. When you are provoked, you don't get all steered up. But meekness is not weakness. It is not spinelessness. One old commentator said, He who is truly meek will always bow to God in serene resignation. He who is under the influence of divine grace does not resent a human injury. He will not quarrel with divine allotment, end quote. Now what that means is, that someone who truly depends on the Lord and who is humble is someone who does not resent it and get huffy when others hurt his feelings. And he has no quarrel with God or with whatever God chooses to bring into his life. That, brethren, is a meek person. Then we are to put on patience. Now remember, all of these qualities were manifested perfectly in Jesus. We are to put on long-suffering. What is that? That is the resolute refusal to retaliate, which is actually the natural response of the unbeliever. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. It's not fair. You're not going to get away with that. Long-suffering and patience is the resolute refusal to retaliate. The Greek word for long-suffering means long-mindedness as opposed to shortness of temper. Then you have these words in verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here's another virtue of Christ you are to put on. And that is mutual forbearance. Enduring one another. Bearing with one another. Putting up with one another. That is such practical counsel. And yet it is so rarely practiced in churches today. Just put up with one another. You hurt my feelings. You said something I don't like. Oh, you offended me. It's almost as if we believe the worst sin anyone can commit is to offend me or to offend you. And actually, it's like we are on the hunt for people to offend us. Don't worry about this. Pray that someone will put up with you as you put up with each other. Then there is mutual forgiveness. Now it says here to forgive each other. 
But it says literally in Greek, and this can be misunderstood today in our highly psychologized world, it says forgiving yourselves. Now, don't interpret that in light of modern psychology that says you've got to forgive yourself. The problem with the person who's going through stress and strain after the breakup of a marriage or whatever is that he has forgiven everyone else, but he has not forgiven himself for these these terrible sins he has committed against his wife. Listen, when you commit a terrible sin, you cry out to the one against whom you have sinned to forgive you and to have mercy on you and to wash you clean in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then don't you ever, don't you ever forgive yourself. Don't ever forgive yourself. I don't care what psychologists say today. I mean, who do you think you are? I forgive myself. You don't forgive yourself. Let me ask you, did Paul forgive himself for arresting Christians that he executed? No, every time he thought about persecuting Christians after he became a Christian, it broke him. He could never forgive himself. Don't even think about forgiving yourself. That's not the issue. The issue is, has God forgiven you? Whatever sin you committed against someone, be ashamed of it whenever you think of it for the rest of your life. So he's not saying forgive yourself in that sense. He is talking to the church and he is simply saying forgive each other. Forgive yourselves. Do you see? Forgive each other in the body of Christ. If someone has a petty quarrel against you or you have a petty quarrel against someone, don't justify your unwillingness to forgive that person. Just forgive him. And sometimes forgive them even before they ask. Let love cover a multitude of sins. This forbearance with each other, putting up with each other and forgiving each other is to characterize all relationships in the body of Christ with each other. It says in verse 13 that we are to forgive each other just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, how did the Lord forgive you? Did he wait until you deserved it? Did he wait until your life was such that you were ready to receive it? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And the forgiveness he gives to us is free and gracious and without merit. He forgives those who do not deserve it. He forgives those who are not worthy of it. He forgives those who don't fully appreciate it. That's how free and open-handed the Lord Jesus Christ is in his forgiveness of sinners. It is that open-handedness and that freedom and that graciousness that is to mark the way we forgive each other in the church. We don't have to always, we don't always have to wait to forgive. By the way, here is where Paul explicitly refers to this virtue, to Christ-likeness. This is the way Christ lived, he says. This is the way Christ is right now, and this is the way that you and I are to be. This is the way you can be because 
You are a new person in Christ. And also here Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as God. There's a great book called The Lord of Glory by Benjamin Warfield in which he goes through every book in the New Testament and he tells you what it teaches about Christ. Great book. And most of the time in the New Testament, when you see the word Lord by itself, more times than not, it is referring to Jesus, like here in verse 13. Bearing one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord or God forgave you, so also should you. Now in context, he is talking about Jesus. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here you have Paul emphasizing again that it is Jesus Christ that forgives sins. And that is his proof that Jesus is God. Because, of course, only God can forgive sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ forgives sins. Why? Because he is God. So if you're going to deal with God, you are going to have to deal with him through Jesus. And when you deal with Jesus, you are dealing with God himself. So put on these virtues. You can do it as Christians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. You now have the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can say no when you need to say no. And you can say yes when you need to say yes. The Holy Spirit has planted the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And now you can manifest these things and be consistent with them. So Paul says, do it. That is what Paul is saying here. Then Paul speaks of the love of Christ in verse 14. He says, beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, or more literally, which is the unifying bond of completeness. So as important as all these other Christ-like virtues are, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the unifying bond of completeness. Now, he is continuing his metaphor of putting on a new set of clothes in this Christ-likeness, and he says, above everything else, put on love without which you as an individual, nor the whole body of Christ, will be complete. And if the body of Christ is not complete, it will not be protected against the seducers. Remember, this is actually one of the first messages I preached on the book of Colossians, that it is only as we are members of the local church of the body of Christ, seeking to build each other up in faith, seeking to be more and more in united in our common quest to be complete in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are protected from the false teachers and seducers of this world. And that is why he is saying, above all else, put on love. Because the unifying bond or the glue of completeness is shown in your love. So that in the church... As you are striving to please the Lord together and being Christ-like, you become more and more 
a complete Christian and more and more secure against the seductions of evil people in the world. And also, he says, above everything else, put on love because conformity to these demands, do this, this, and this, is nothing but dutiful external harmony and it is not a Christ-likeness. If love is not in it, I mean, you could say, I've got to obey this law and this law, and I've, I've got to live this way and this way, and this is the way I have to behave, because that's the way Jesus did. And then you really work hard to do it, but there's no real love that grows in your heart and manifests itself in your life for God and for other people. Then all of that is just external, ugly, cheap imitation. And that is why he says, above everything else, I have just told you, put on love. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter? You know, every time I read those first three verses, I'm just amazed at what they say. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I have the miraculous spiritual gift to speak in tongues, I have never learned even the language of angels. But if my life is not characterized by love, all of that highfalutin talk is just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. But he keeps going deeper and he says, And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. He said, I have the gift of prophecy. I can foretell the future. I can be a powerful preacher. I can know all the aspects of the mysterious revelations of God and have a knowledge that is profound, superior to everyone else's. And I can have a faith that moves mountains. But if my life is not characterized by love, all of this is valueless. He could go on all day without saying the next thing. He says, if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor... And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He says, if I sell my house and my car, give all all my possessions to feed the poor people. And if I die in a war or whatever to protect others or rescue someone from a burning building. But if my life is not characterized by the most excellent gift of all called love, it profits me nothing. In 1 Corinthians 8, he said, knowledge or knowledge without love makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows something, he is not known yet as, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, Paul is not here driving a wedge between knowledge and love, but he is saying, That knowledge without love makes you cocky and you might think you know a lot of things, but you really know nothing if love is not there. Now, what is love? Love is an intelligent, purposefully self-giving. 
It is the giving of yourself to meet the needs of another person. Love unites and bonds believers together and enables us to move together toward the goal of completeness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-giving, if it is really love, it will even be when it is inconvenient. How often do we practice the giving of ourselves on our energy only when it is convenient for us to do so? You know, it fits our schedule. It fits our pocketbook, etc. Loving giving of ourselves is done when it is inconvenient, difficult, expensive, and even unappreciated. 1 John 3.16 and following says, we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, you have to admit that's never convenient, right? It's always expensive. He lost his life. It is always difficult. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God then abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That is what love is. Love is not feeling warm and fuzzy about someone, though that can certainly include that. Love is a giving of yourself to try and meet the needs of someone, even if you don't particularly like that person. When God is said to love in the Bible, he is said to give. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Beloved, you have a great opportunity to manifest this Christ-like love toward others. It's not always convenient. It is sometimes expensive. But you have a great opportunity to pursue this Christ-likeness of love, this unifying bond that makes us all complete by the giving of yourself for the sake of others when you see or hear of a need. And it is not intellectual knowledge. It is not philosophy of obedience to human traditions that strengthens us, that unites us, that leads us toward our goal. It is a Christ-like love for one another that is spontaneous response to God's love for us. We love, says the Bible. Why? Because he first loved us. Well, in verse 15, Paul moves from the love of Christ to the peace of Christ. And he says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, what is this peace? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart above all. Put on the love and now let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Well, this peace is something only Christ can give. And Jesus said, I give unto you, not as the world gives, I give unto you. So, not, so do not let your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a peace from God that surpasses all comprehension that stands guard over our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And when he says, let the peace of Christ reign among you, he is speaking to them as individual and as a corporate body. 
to their experience as individuals and their experience as a church of believers. What is this peace of Christ in the believer's heart? Commentator William Hendrickson said, It is that rest, listen carefully, it is that rest and contentment in the hearts of those who know their Redeemer lives and He reigns. It is the conviction that the sins of the past have been forgiven, that the present is being overruled for good, and that the future cannot bring about a separation between Christ and His own people. You are at peace. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. (music) 